0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we're doing something a little different this week, or this episode, I should say. Our friends at the Great Tikva Podcast, which is, uh, I don't want to call it a niche podcast, <laughs> because uh, this is a different thing, but they're, uh, they specialize in... Jewish thinkers, Jewish intellectuals, intellectual matters that are of particular interest do Jewish thinkers and Jewish intellectuals and whatnot, and they do some really great stuff. I listen to them often, and a couple weeks ago, they turned the tables on me and wanted to talk to me about an essay I did uh, for Commentary Magazine about Karl Marx and Marxism and anti-Semitism, and I was happy to do it, and we did it, and then... Um, I asked if, be okay if we sort of put it out on our feed too as a, as a standalone remnant podcast as well with the proviso that we would say nice things about the Tikva podcast, um, which I'm happy to do because it's a great podcast. Um, and they were pleased to do it. And so if you like this conversation that we had, you should really check out the Tikva podcast. They've had, um, a whole bunch of really great episodes that I've listened to, um, in the past. And, um, So the person who's interviewing me for this is the host of the Tikva podcast, Jonathan Silver. And uh, thanks to the Tikva folks for letting us do this. And thank you for indulging us with this really, uh, you know, gratuitous form of recycling content. And so here we go.
1: Jonah Goldberg, welcome to the Tikva podcast.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I thought we'd discuss your commentary essay and use it as an occasion to think more broadly about Marx's role in, in politics today and how Jewish Americans might think about him. But maybe let's just begin with your interest in the subject. Now, as I understand it, this was originally perhaps going to be part of Suicide of the West and then found its way to become its own original piece, its own separate piece. How did you become
0: interested in Marx? Oh, gosh. It's hard to avoid growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I guess. I'm interested in ideas. And I, I will say, and if you want to talk about this more in a bit, we can. I've always loved intellectual history, but I have changed my views a bit, which I hint at in this piece about how intellectual history actually works. At the end, I sort of get into that. And if you're interested in intellectual history, it's sort of like saying you're interested in professional football these days. But not having any interest in the Patriots to say that you're not interested in Marx is just influence is so huge. And it's not just in the sort of obvious way of, you know, setting a series of events in motion that enslaved millions of people in the Soviet Union and in other countries and or even in, in China. Although again, I think that, that history gets a little fuzzy, but in all sorts of indirect ways. So much of, so many of the categories of how we understand the role of business, the role of culture, so many of our movies have hidden Marxist influences. And I don't mean that in some sort of fevered conspiracy theory kind of way. I just simply mean that enormous numbers of famous screenwriters um, and novelists were directly or indirectly influenced by socialism, by Marxist thought. And those ideas and those forms bubble up in all sorts of unforeseen and unpredictable ways. And you have to contend both with Marx, the actual flesh and blood person, but also what people turned Marx into. My first book, Liberal fascism, which got a lot of uh, attention, um, to put it mildly. You know, Marx is a figure in there too, because so much of nineteenth and twentieth century intellectual and political history were downstream of the change in consciousness that Marx brought about.
1: And Marx himself, of course, there's there's the Marx of exploitation, division of labor, the labor theory of value, who's seen as the precursor to what becomes communism. And then there's the kind of marks of this humane vision who's worried about the alienation of the soul and modernity. These two
0: figures are actually themselves don't always fit together in clear ways. That's right. Reading Marx is in many ways a workshop test for a lot of people. What do you take away from it? Some people take away this humane vision. No, I think it's Josh Morawczyk in a wonderful book, and if you haven't had him on, you should, um, called Heaven on Earth. It's a history of socialism. He's the one who first pointed out persuasively to me that, that Marx and Engels, in many ways, came to their communism, for want of another word, right? Came to their vision of socialism through their atheism. They didn't come to their atheism through their communism. They were, first and foremost... Mad at God and mad at the idea of God and mad particularly of the Hebrew God, <laughs> um, and secondarily at Hebrews that drove them to a lot of their views. Now, I'm not saying that the single most important insight into Marx is his anti-Semitism or what I consider to be his anti-Semitism, but the militant atheism, uh, that they bring to bear on their reading of history and everything else, I think is very hard to disentangle from all of that. And I would argue one of the hallmarks of I don't want to be pejorative to, to millions of perfectly decent left of center people and some right of center people. But one of the hallmarks of what I w- what for want of a better term would call sort of the progressive mindset is this desire to put yourself in the place of God and recreate or redesign society de novo. You know, even uh, John Rawls, who I think was an eminently decent, honorable, liberal philosopher, in no way a hard Marxist, he wouldn't put anyone in camps or any of that kind of stuff. Probably his biggest or at least his most famous contribution to philosophy is this idea of the veil of ignorance, where he says, imagine you are disembodied soul waiting in some kind of limbo, and you're told that you can design a society any way you want But the trick is that when you become corporealized, when you were born onto the planet, you don't know if you're going to be black or white or Jewish or gay or rich or poor. So how would you design a society so that it is you have the best chance of being treated fairly no matter how you're born? I think it is a brilliant mental exercise and very, very useful. But it also, when you think about it, it's the guy putting himself in the place of God creating, if not the universe, then the sort of social universe that we're born into, And you find enormous amounts of that in Marx. You find that in all sorts of intellectuals, you know, of the technocratic side or any other kind who see the world as it is and think they know better.
1: It's one of the the two major reasons that you point to at the end of the essay marx's utopian picture of a messianic world for atheists that that you think actually holds the key to the enduring power of marx especially for the the lefts the left's imagination i want i want to start earlier in the essay to just work our way towards that sure. point the labor theory of value right is this economic concept, let's unpack it and then see what role it plays in the in what will eventually come to as Marx's assessment of the Jews.
0: Well, I should say, you know, Irving Kristol, who's a huge influence on me and whose spirit I think is presiding over the TikFA podcast, <laughs> um, used to say that there is no such thing as a non-capitalist uh, economic theory. And I struggle with whether or not I agree with that. I know Yuval Levin has said maybe the labor theory of value is an economic theory. That I don't think is true. What the the labor theory of value holds, and it's central to all of Marx's analysis of capitalism, of modern society, of industrialization, is that all of the value of a product, whether it's a widget or a mousetrap or a carriage or whatever, is derived wholly and entirely by the amount of time and effort put into it by the physical laborer. And so if you own a f- widget factory and your staff or your employees can make widgets at a dollar a piece, whatever a widget is, I don't know. Is is a widget a real thing? And anyway, they can make it at a dollar a piece and you sell it for $2 a piece. What you're doing is you are robbing the laborers of a dollar of value. You are exploiting them. So all profit is surplus value that is not captured in the wages of the employees. And this is, first of all, as a matter of economics, this is, by my lights, ludicrous, Right. Because first of all, um, as I think I say in the essay, if you have a dumb, slow, and inefficient person making a mousetrap, and you have a industrious, intelligent, hardworking person making a mousetrap, and the slow guy makes one mousetrap in a month, and the the hardworking industrious guy makes 100 mousetraps in a month, the value of these things on the market isn't determined at all by the labor that goes into it. It's determined by what the market is willing to pay for a mousetrap. And if they're identical mousetraps then the person who takes slow and and struggles to make a single good mousetrap in a month is just really bad at his job. But it doesn't mean his mousetrap is a 100 times more valuable than the guy who can do it, you know, a 100 times more efficiently. Also, just the idea that intellectual input or innovation, if you come up with a better way to make a mousetrap, that is adding value. If it's a better mousetrap, the intellectual labor that you're putting in, which often comes from the evil industrialist, that's part of the value in the marketplace – But what Marx does is he basically says, because all of the value derives entirely from the labor of the laborer and nobody else, anything that is made as profit above that is, in his words, vampiric, right? It is – he loves the phrase bloodsucking. And because capitalism, which is still fairly fresh on the scene when he is writing, um, seems to be, by his lights, exploiting laborers to create great wealth and profits for the rich, never taking into account the prosperity that comes from all of these new products and all these old products coming out cheaper for the average consumer. He ignores all of that. He sees the industrial or ruling classes or uh, economic elites as essentially slave masters, little better than slave masters. Therefore, his entire indictment of capitalism derives from this idea that capitalism is inherently exploitation of the more worthy working classes by the idle or usurious, you know, financial elites. The usurious financial elites, that would
1: seem to be a phrase used to describe a very specific portion of the European population.
0: It, it is, and it was, right? So, Jews, you know, have a very specific history in Europe, and, in Europe, where they were the one class, as a generalization, I'm sure there was some exception in, you know, you know, Estonia or whatever, but generally speaking in Europe, Christian Europe, Jews were exempt from usury laws. And There were a whole bunch of different reasons for this. One was, the theological argument that since Jews were already damned, why not have them do that work? Because usury, uh, manipulating, making money from money was considered sinful and evil. It's characterized that way in the New Testament by Aristotle and the Greek philosophers, many of whom informed early Christianity. And so the Jews were exempted from these things, and they basically became a financial caste, um, or a caste of financiers, the way untouchables were a sanitation caste. It's like, money is dirty, the Jews can handle it because we don't care about them. The problem was is that they were also demonized for it. This is one of the only professions you can have, and you're evil because it's your profession. So it was a catch-22. So for Marx, who got to remember, is a descendant of rabbis on both sides of his family. And his father, for career reasons, converted to Lutheranism when he was a kid, or maybe before he was born. I can't remember now. So Marx was ancestrally Jewish, even though he was raised Lutheran. And Lutheranism, particularly German Lutheranism, has some really disturbing anti-Semitic strains in it. And you can just read, I mean, I list some of the things that Luther said about the Jews, burn their synagogues and all this kind of stuff. And he clearly imbibed some of that, but he also imbibed this age-old thing about being sort of a self-hating Jew. So part of his, you know, the most famous essay in this stuff is on the Jewish question, which we should be clear isn't, even though the Nazis talked about the Jewish question, it is not a Nazi tract. It, it was written almost 100 years before the kind of biological anti-Semitism that gives rise to the Holocaust was born. So even though it sounds creepy at that frequency, that's not what it what it's about. At the same time, it's an incredibly creepy essay. Because what Marx is arguing is that the Jew, the real Jew, he says, not the Sabbath Jew, but the real Jew, his God is money, his God is mammon, his God is materialism. And the problem is, is that the worst thing about the Jews is that they've turned all the Christians into Jews, too, because that's all they care about is money, too. And it's a complex argument. It's a weird argument. But at the end of the day, he is basically arguing that the thing we know about real Jews in the real world is they're just a whole bunch of money-grubbing um, exploiters of the working class.
1: I want to enter into that essay because I think that there's so many different intellectual moves. Mm-hmm. It, might, it might repay for us to linger over it a bit and to try to unpack some of them or at least trace those sure. moves. So, as I understand it, one of Marx's contemporaries, this guy Bruno Bauer, right. writes this essay in which he struggles with a question, as you were just saying, many thinkers are trying to understand what's called the Jewish question or the right. Jewish problem. And Bruno Bauer reasons – I mean, if you accept some of his premises, it re- it follows. The, the reasons follow from his premises. And the premise is, well, look, Jews don't have political rights in Germany. So in order for us to confer upon Jews political rights, we have to make Germany secular. mm mm-hmm. If we make Germany secular, it will solve the problem of anti-Semitism. And Marx comes along and says, well, look, Bauer, in America, they have a secular state, meaning a state without established religion, and anti-Semitism exists there. So obviously, it's not a question of a sacral politics. It's a question, it's a problem instead, or the problem is to be found instead in the endurance of religion itself in, in civil society. Because if you have religion in civil society, it means you have a force that forces people to focus on the things that are particular to them, their particularism. And nothing represents that more forcefully than the Jews. It seems to me that when Marx is talking about the Jews in this essay on the Jews, he's really using it as a way to focus on particularism Mm -hmm. and the worldly focus that bourgeois economics or commerce uses to force us to think about our practical needs. It's a way that invites us to reinforce the worst things of the market economy. That's what Judaism seems to mean to Marx in this Mm -hmm. essay.
0: I think that is largely right. And I think because when you, when you, when you repeat
1: Mark's saying, don't look at the Sabbath Jew. Right. Look at the Jew as he really exists as a political animal in society. The political function he plays is as a traitor, Mm -hmm. as someone who's besmirched by usury. That's the level of analysis we have to focus on.
0: I mean, I hinted at this earlier about how I I look at intellectual history a little differently than I used to. I think what sets, you know, Friedrich Hayek talks about how liberalism, classical liberalism, the liberalism of Locke, the liberalism that the best parts of the American founding draw from, this idea that our rights come from God, not from government, that we're citizens, not subjects that we're allowed to pursue the individual pursuit of happiness and enjoy the fruits of our labors. That liberalism was once considered the enemy of conservatives. And by conservatives, I mean the European variety of conservatives of, you know, blood and throne, traditional style, demised conservatives, the ones who wanted to defend the ancien regime, the ones who wanted to defend the old order, the rule of guilds, the rule of aristocracies and, and church. Right. And- Cons- conservatism as it was construed largely in defense of monarchy, aristocracy, right. a highly... Hierarchical society. Right. So, Samuel Huntington has a brilliant essay called Conservatism as an Ideology. And one of the things he points out, and I reread it about once every five years, one of the things he points out is that conservatism and radicalism are the only two major political ideologies that are almost entirely contextual, right? The radical just simply wants to tear everything down to the roots. That's what radical, radical comes from radix, meaning root. And the conservative wants to conserve what currently exists. So when liberalism was the new thing in the world, it was opposed by conservatives. And so part of what I would argue is that Marxian socialism, Fabian socialism, all of these various kinds of things are in reality – a new kind of conservatism that strips away the religious part and the monarchy and, and all those kinds of things, but still holds on to this concept of what what I would call the cult of unity. The idea that sort of imposing a Rousseauian general will, we're all in it together. All the different parts of society must work in coordination with each other. Pursuing individual self-interest is inimical to the body politic. I hate metaphors that liken society to a living organism because it leads to all sorts of evil mischief in almost every generation. And when Marx is talking about particularism in there, he's talking about individual liberty. He's talking about people actually choosing to buy the goods and services or sell the goods and services that are available to them that fit, fulfill their individual desires, to go their own way. And this is the, the through line, I would argue, in all all forms of totalitarianism, whether you want to call them left or right or something in the middle, whether it's nationalism or socialism, communism, fascism, they're all this idea that all the oars have to pull together. And the person who pulls the oars by on his own timetable or in a different direction is the enemy of everybody. And so for Marx, who defines these things in this sort of quasi-romantic economics terms, particularity is is really individual liberty. And the Jews, because they run against the grain, they of the existing social norms and customs as as Germans see them or as whoever sees them, they are seen as sort of internal exiles. I don't know, I, you know, dissidents from the group thing. Or as the Japanese like to say, they're the tall nail that gets hammered down. And that's what bothers people in all sorts of diverse societies about Jews and also middleman minorities generally. Uh Thomas Sowell's written a lot about this, that anywhere in the world where you have some ethnicity, the Chinese abroad who... Control vast amounts of economies in various countries outside of China are hated by the indigenous people because they're seen as exploiters. They're seen as these people who come in, they may work harder, they may, you know, they bring innovations, they hire their families and friends, and they're not part of the um, indigenous customs and norms, and so they're seen as the other. And I would argue that Marx is on the Jewish question and his talk about particularity is perfectly consistent with that trend which you see in all sorts of societies. Okay, so this is a fairly forced and artificial interruption in the middle of uh, our conversation, which I hope you guys are enjoying, but we're going to do a little plug here for the uh, National Review Institute's 2019 Ideas Summit at the Mandarin Oriental in Washington, D.C. on March 28 and 29. This biennial conference will feature a powerful and diverse lineup of speakers, including many of your favorite National Review writers, representing the very best that the conservative movement has to offer. The 2019 theme is The Case for the American Experiment with a Focus on American Exceptionalism and the Country's Resilience and Economic Recovery. For more information and to register, please visit www.nrinstitute.org. That's www.nrinstitute.org. Space is limited, so reserve your seat today. I hope to see you in Washington this
1: spring. So interesting because, you know, it's not... It's not an entirely different intellectual universe in which Jewish thinkers, Zionist thinkers like Herzl see similar phenomena and come to the conclusion that, you know, actually taking for granted some aspects of this Marxist analysis, it wouldn't say that. They wouldn't describe it that way, but they would say, yes, it's true. In order for us – so the political emancipation of the Jews in Europe was a disaster. In order for us to solve the Jewish question, I'll put that in quotation marks, so we can't be integrated into this state.
0: We have to have our own state. So it's interesting. um, And I've been meaning to write something on this for a long time. And I, d- I did a little bit of this in a recent commentary essay. But if you go back and JSTOR or any of those databases, and you look at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, middle to the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, you'll be exhausted by the number of people debating what was called the social question. And the social question is, to me, just an analog in many ways to the Jewish question. Because the social question was, how are we going to be organized as a society, right? And it had economic components to it, it had nationalistic components to it. I mean, there are all sorts of different frequencies to it. And you had everyone from Christian pastors to the new vogue social engineers, which was not a negative term at the beginning of the 20th century, the new political scientists, the German historical school, everyone was debating the social question because clearly the old way of organizing society was crumbling all around them or had disappeared. And everyone was very anxious about where are we going to find stability and order? Where are we going to find the new understanding of our place in the world and our place with regard to our neighbors and our countrymen? And this is, you know, and it's completely understandable given in the amazing social upheaval that comes from the industrial revolution, from the scientific revolution, and from these political revolutions. That lead to all sorts of things like the emancipation of Jews around Europe, and it's this general tumult and upheaval. And one of the things, you know, Hannah Arendt writes about this quite a bit about how one of the one of the sources of anti-Semitism in Europe was the decline of the importance of being an aristocrat. Right when the old aristocracy declines, when you're no longer when owning land isn't the only source of wealth, and that these new entrepreneurs, some of whom were Jewish, a lot of whom weren't, um, could rise up and eclipse these existing. Uh, people with wonderfully long titles of, for their names, but not a lot of money, and so there was this, I, you know, there's this idea that goes back in Western Europe and I think all around the world of the upstart, right? Um, these people, the riche. yeah, who jump up out of their their assigned station to someplace much higher, and it causes enormous levels of resentment and status class anxiety. You know, it's fascinating to look at the voting habits of the high-ranking sort of domestic help in aristocratic houses in England, where it's sort of like the head butler in Downton Abbey types, who were very skittish about this new democratic age because they consider themselves to have a good station in life. And then all of a sudden, all of these old categories and hierarchies were melting away, and the only one that seemed to be rising up was this phrase that even de Tocqueville uses, the aristocracies of wealth where all of a sudden you were a baron, the equivalent of a baron or a feudal lord because you were rich rather than because you can trace your lineage back to the 11th century or something. And so there's an enormous amount of tumult. And I think the Jewish question in that context is just a sort of one chapter in the larger volume of the social question, which everyone was just sort of groping to figure out. Well, this is a question I actually wanted to
1: discuss with you. So I'm glad you brought it up because it always seemed to me that that analysis that you just offered explains accurately why in the European context, issues of class and the Jewish question are mixed. Yeah. So that you come, inspired by Marx's moral imagination, you could understand why European Jews were forced either into, you know, I'll I'll use this term, self-hating Jewish assimilation, to be more atheist than the atheists, or to leave. If they wanted to succeed, those were the two options. But in America, class just didn't capture the American imagination quite the same way. our primal wound is a racial wound, mm-hmm. not a class wound. And I, it always seemed to be that Marx never quite caught on in America the same way, and that it explains less of American anti
0: Semitism. You think, you agree with that? I think that's right. I mean, I haven't put an enormous amount of thought into that, but I think that's right. I mean, you know, there's that famous line from Werner Sombart where he says, why is there no socialism in America? And for a long time, this was an extremely hotly debated question. And, and it still is in certain rarefied circles. And it may be becoming more relevant again, you know, given the current political climate. But the standard answer from Bryce and from all these people was that because we did not have a history of feudalism. And because we didn't have a history of feudalism, you know, there's a, I, I quote a bunch of it in my book, Suicide of the West. There's a wonder, some wonderful stuff from Daniel Borston where he talks about how Europeans visiting early America in the 1820s, let's say, being horrified at how, you know, there are no sumptuary codes, right? In Europe, a sumptuary code is these rules about everything from what, you're allowed, what certain ranks of people are allowed to buy to what they're allowed to wear to what they're allowed to eat and... In America, you'd have these like Hungarian diplomats visiting and it drove them crazy because they couldn't tell what class someone belonged to by their clothing. You know, your clothing in feudal, traditional European societies was essentially your social uniform. In America, we just didn't have that. And in part because there was a selection bias. The people who came here were running away from that from the very beginning. Um, I t- again, I talk about in the book but um, how and Daniel Hanan talks about this a lot in his book on how England... Uh Created Liberty, that's something like the title, where a lot of the founding generation of this country were the so-called second sons. In Europe, because of primogeniture, the firstborn son got everything, right? Because the, the, the key to maintaining your power and your status was holding on to your lands. And if you could subdivide if you had to subdivide your lands between all of your progeny In a couple generations, you wouldn't be high status anymore. And so for this very historically weird confluence of factors, the affluent at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century in England were healthier. So more of their babies survived. And so you had these very educated, um, very ambitious, very sort of born with a certain amount of resentment because they weren't the oldest son, but, but also a certain sense of entitlement that their station, they deserved a high ranking station. They went off to America to start their fortunes, to create their fortune. And that from the very beginning created a certain kind of ethos that was all about being able to enjoy the fruits of your labors and what you create you get to keep. And that culture just kept magnifying and magnifying after the American Revolution, um, as waves of more immigrants came in and the way our economy was structured the way the fact that we had this at the time endless frontier where you go off and get land, which in Europe the idea of just getting free land was just in, unimaginable right right. And so the whole sort of yeoman spirit was contrary to this idea of classes and also contrary to this idea that you were born into a certain station for the rest of your life. One of the great greatest things the founding fathers did that no one ever talks about is they completely abolished titles of nobility because – and as I argue – Pretty passionately, you know, identity politics is ancient and hardwired into us. And aristocracy is probably the first form of identity politics starting after the agricultural revolution, where at first the elites who are controlling these, you know, original city states or early societies got there by the strength of arms or whatever. Very quickly, they formed essentially a guild. And they said, you know, that what they wanted to do was leave their wealth to their children and their wealth was tied up with their power and their status and their station. And so they created this concept of noble blood and said that simply by virtue of the fact that this child is born of me, it is better than your child. And uh, the founding fathers, with the absolutely morally vital glaring exception of slaves, and to a certain extent Native Americans and all that, rejected that and said, no, you know, sort of this Jeffersonian idea that nobody is born more virtuous than anybody else, which you can also find in Locke, and that you take people as you find them. And that is not conducive to this sort of socialist ethos, which is one of the reasons, again, why I was saying earlier about why I think socialism and the cult of unity that it's part of is really reactionary rather than revolutionary because what it is trying to do is reassert older notions of social solidarity where the individual is not free to carve out his own path in life and uh, live from the fruits of his labors, where the individual is first and foremost obliged to serve the greater needs of the whole. And I want to be clear about this. That instinct, this desire that you're supposed to serve others, uh, which is huge in Judaism, it's huge in Christianity, is vitally important. It's not evil. It's not tyrannical. It's not totalitarian if it's kept in its right lane. The family... The local community, your local religious groups—you are supposed to consider your brother and sister. You are supposed to consider your fellow man. The problem is, is that when you—that idea—is not scalable. Friedrich Hayek talks about the microcosm and the macrocosm. And the microcosm, the best example of which is the family. We're all socialists, right? I mean, I'm a communist in my family, I and mean, I've said this a million times. Where I do you sh- according to his ability to, to each, each according, according to their need? need right? I do not charge my daughter for food, you know, or for rent yet. If you have two, let me put it this way: if you have two sons and one's a lunkhead. Right. And just all he wants to do is play Call of Duty. And he's kind of a moron. And uh, but you love him. And then your other son is really hardworking, straight A's, all of the rest. You don't give a straight A kid better food. Right. You don't you don't give him better clothes. You treat them both because you love them outside of the world of contracts and markets. The problem is, is that if you take the logic of family, sort of like the metaphors of body politic I was talking about earlier, and you apply them to the macrocosm of the entire society, that becomes tyrannical. That becomes totalitarian. And similarly, if you take the logic of the market or the macrocosm and you try to apply it to the family, you'll destroy the family. If you start treating the, the family like it's a business, you'll destroy any notion of, of the sort of love, lovable and lovely parts of family life. And so I think that – I mean, this is a long digression from where this question started, but there are other reasons for anti-Semitism than simply socialism. Um, and not all socialists are anti-Semites, but there's a reason why anti-Semitism has been called uh, the socialism of fools. It's often attributed to Lenin, but it's really babbles. I-, I can't remember. Anyway, it's a quote a lot of people throw around, but there's a lot of truth to it. It is this idea that we're going to define ourselves by our hatred of this one other. In America, that logic doesn't work as well. Um, at least when it comes to anti-Semitism. In certain communities, it certainly did work pretty well when it came to African-Americans. I think one of the most
1: perceptive parts of the essay is the final section in which you do point to these two key areas in which Marx's anti-Semitic tropes haven't transmogrified and endured in America. Now, we already spoke about one of them, which is that it offers a picture of final justice on Earth for atheists. That's a very powerful reason. But it's not necessarily connected to anti-Semitism in the Jews. The first reason that you give or the first example that you offer of the way that Marx is endured is in the endurance of conspiratorial thinking. That has really captured the American imagination
0: on the left and the right in different ways. I think that's right. I wrote it. <laughs> but um, I should back up for two seconds. You know, there's there's an argument about whether Marx was a conspiracy theorist. I think he clearly was. Professor Jerry Mueller, who I have enormous respect for, he wrote a letter to the editor complaining about some of my argument in this, and I had a response to it in the following issue. And he doesn't buy the idea that Marxism is a conspiracy theory. I disagree with him on the merits, but we need to disentangle a couple of things. Marx was a conspiracy theorist. He had all sorts of crazy ideas about, I don't know, the Crimean War was a false flag operation, all this kind of stuff. I don't think you can disentangle that mindset from his written work very well. If you are a conspiracy theorist, in some of your writing, the idea that you're not conspiracy theorist at some level and in your other writing, I think is not necessarily persuasive. But moreover, there's the Marxism that you can find in Das Kapital and all the rest. And then there's the Marxism that became this live idea that animates people. Uh, George Sorel, who was a hugely influential syndicalist thinker in Europe, he recognized very early that Marx as social science was pretty much garbage, but it was an immensely useful myth, organizing myth, sort of a platonic vital lie, right? And he says that the way we should be teaching Marxism is basically as an apocalyptic text, as basically a a stand-in for religion itself. When you actually read the Marxists that came, right, whenever they run into contradictions – their accusation their their argument immediately gets weirdly conspiratorial either that's what the ruling classes want you to think, and you're suffering from false consciousness. If you read the sort of Frankfurt School people, all of capitalism is this carefully orchestrated system of manipulation that creates makes luxuries into needs for people and If you just think about where the labor theory of value goes, right, the whole idea is that the entire economic system is one where. Shadowy elites and industrial ruling classes, either wittingly or unwittingly, depending on which flavor of Marxism you subscribe to, are manipulating and exploiting the masses for their own benefits. That's a conspiracy theory. All you have to do, this gets us back to where we were talking about in the beginning about the influence of Marx. So much of the verbiage you hear out there from Noam Chomskyites on down, right, is this idea that corporations or globalists or whoever are manipulating the system for their own benefit and exploiting people Um, Or treating people as cogs in the industrial machine. This is not to say that all indictments or all criticisms of the existing industrial order or the economic order are inherently invalid. There's some perfectly – you know, Orrin Cass was on my podcast recently and made some very fine arguments about, you know, way elites operate. I have enormous criticisms of a lot of elites too. But this idea of intentionality, which is very much hardwired into our brains and our natural environment, our greatest threat was from other human beings. And we did not – there's a natural human tendency to take yourself very seriously. And so when bad things happen to you, you want to believe that somebody else is responsible for it. That somebody is profiting. There's a villain in the story somewhere. You know, for Marx and Engels from the beginning, it was religion was a big part, was the villain behind the the curtain. Um, Also for people like Rousseau, the priests were the bad guys. Same thing with Nietzsche. And the assumption is, is that the world that we live in right now was planned by somebody. That somebody sat down and said, this is how it's going to work and I'm going to get rich from it. That's not how life really works. And I think it suffuses so much of Marxist analysis, socialist analysis, to just assume that my problems are the handiwork of villains somewhere. Look, it it would
1: seem to me that on the one hand, dimensioning a picture of a secular utopia on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, circumscribing the arena of human complicity. In our own misfortune, and instead putting that suffering onto these shadowy conspiracy figures. Those are two features of Marxist analysis that are easy to detect in our politics, unfortunately, but, but it's, you can't deny that they're there. But I want to go back to some of the things that you were writing about Marx's essay on the Jews. And here I think that the most passionate, fervent, energetic dimension of the political left in America now can't be explained by Marx. It's a way to see the limitations of the Marxist analysis. Mm-hmm. So it seemed to me that when Marx is looking at the Jews, just to remind us and pick up that thread of the conversation, when he's looking at the Jews, he sees a problem in the cohesion, the homogeneity of the state, that these are citizens, as you're using the example of the the, the Japanese saying, this is the nail that stands up higher mm-hmm. and therefore has to be banged down. Removing the Jews or forcing the Jews to remove their Jewishness from themselves is a way to make everyone the same and Mm -hmm. embrace a kind of humanity that all women and men share. When you look at the identity politics intersectionality of the left, you see the opposite intellectual move, a doubling down on our difference, Mm -hmm. a doubling down on the things that make us separate from one another, and in fact, can precisely order us in hierarchies of justice. It seems to me that it'd be hard for a Marxist analysis to explain this, perhaps the defining feature of leftist politics in our moment.
0: No, I think that's a great point. Now, I have a friend who's a professor of history at a major university and he used to regale me about how all of the fights in the faculty lounge among the historians and political scientists was whether or not the monocausal explanation of everything in America was race or class. And that's been a through line for a very long time, right? And I can imagine that, first of all, Sidney Hook, right? And some of those guys who I, I think Sidney Hook and Michael Harrington there were a lot of really decent socialists in America political history, would be horrified by a lot of this. I mean, even, even Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was not really a socialist, though he had his sympathies, his last big book was The Disuniting of America. and It was 35 years ago where he was assailing this splintering of pluribus without any mind towards unum. And I think that's right. I think part of the explanation for why that's so is that let me back up. I keep hinting about why I think about intellectual history differently. I actually think that a lot of our ideologies and our political impulses are downstream of deeper psychological impulses. And I, I've written thousands of words about how I hate psychologizing politics, right? And so I, I understand that there's some real problems with this. But we are hardwired to be a social animal. Human beings who live in solitary isolation like Rousseau's noble savage have a tendency to do this thing that social scientists call die. Right. Um, We're cooperative species. We work with each other. Um, That was our evolutionary advantage. Darwin writes about this, about tribes with a high sense of social solidarity and cooperativeness would be more likely to defeat a bunch of Randian individualists. Of course, he doesn't use the word Randian. And so the overriding impulse among a lot of thinkers and this is why i say marxism is reactionary and socialism is reactionary is this cult of unity thing is this idea of of maximum social solidarity and if you look at the history of liberalism in the 20th century in america it is almost entirely a um a play on william james's idea of the, the moral equivalent of war william james in 1906 i think writes this essay or gives a speech um on the moral equivalent of war and he basically says what we need to do is find a substitute for war that doesn't involve killing people. And because war brings out what's best in everybody. We drop our individual pursuits. We drop our petty associations. And we rally around the state for big causes where we all work together. He has a lot of stuff that today's feminists would despise about the hardihood of masculinity that comes out in war and all that kind of stuff. But he says war brings out all the best virtues in people. And the problem with war is the war part. And so he wants to come up with different arguments for why we should all drop our particularity and rally around um, big causes. And it was the idea behind the intellectuals supporting World War I and Woodrow Wilson's War Socialism. It was the idea behind the New Deal. It was the idea behind JFK's New Frontier. It was the idea... Um, behind the Great Society to a certain extent and the War on Poverty. It was the idea of that was behind Barack Obama's talk about Sputnik moments where during the Cold War, we all rallied together for big projects. Um, And it's the idea behind Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. Now, here's the thing. A lot of these people probably never read William James. A lot of these people, they may not think that they're talking about the moral equivalent of war. They may think they're just talking about the New Deal, which they thought was great. But if you start peeling away the layers of the onion, it all gets back to this idea of this cult of unity. And that is among the most ancient ideas. It is a adaptive mechanism that allowed us to survive in our natural environment. And so what happens, I would argue, is that in every generation, the psychological impulse gets gussied up as some new ideological program. And so in this sense, I'm not saying that Marx isn't influential, but he was among the most influential articulators of another version of the same ancient idea of this cult of unity. And it's amazing when you read Marx and really Engels when they talk about how what the world looks like at the end of history, it's very much tribal society with the same sort of rejection of division of labor, the rejection of the need to work. And again, it's a nostalgic view of what tribal life was like. And so that's why I argue that liberal democratic capitalism, that it can trace itself back to 7th century England and its intellectual antecedents in some senses and trace itself straight back to Christianity and the Jews in other senses. But when it hit that sort of critical mass moment after the American founding is really the only shockingly novel political idea um, in the last 10,000 years because it places it, – it flips the emphasis to the sovereignty of the individual rather than the sovereignty of the group. And there are all sorts of problems that come with that and we're wrestling with a lot of them right now. I'm not saying it's a panacea. And a lot of the problems that we have right now is that we've been spending down the social capital that came from intact communities, intact families, um, the microcosms that helped form citizens and let them be productive members of society. And to get to your question about the modern left and this intersectionality stuff and identity politics, what we're still seeing is what the evolutionary psychologists call the coalition instinct. And I highly recommend for people who are interested, John Tooby has a great essay. I think it's the nerve.com explaining this. He's sort of the founder of evolutionary psychology. The coalition instinct is not quite tribalism. What it is, is this ability to convince yourself to form factions, right, as the Founding Fathers would put it, to find allies, whether even within the tribe, whose self-interest is aligned with yours. And so much of the left's politics are coalitional in this sense and they define themselves against the other. Right now, for a lot of them, it's white supremacy, which I would argue is often... I'm not saying white supremacy doesn't exist and I'm certainly not saying it didn't exist in America. But we have a tendency to worry about the problems that are least plaguing us at any given moment. You know, we kind of freak out about things only after we've largely solved them. The example that Charles Murray often cites is a lagging indicator like this. Most of child labor was gone in the United States by the time we passed child labor laws. It was only when the problem had sufficiently shrunk that people would say, my God, we're still doing that? That's horrible. And so we passed all of these laws, even though the society had been fixing these problems for a very long time. The idea that America today, I mean, I just saw a Pew poll yesterday or Gallup poll yesterday, Showing favorable, unfavorable rating for um, Martin Luther King uh, today versus 1964. And in 1964, it was like split, good, bad, right? And now it's like 94, 94% approved. If you look at the data of people saying that they would move out of their neighborhood if black people moved next door to them, even 40 years ago, the number was scarily high, even particularly in the South. Now it is infinitesimally small, including in the South. And so – but the problem – but my point is, is that the intersectionality crowd, they may have really fascinating angels on the head of a pin arguments about who outranks who in the victimhood Olympics. But the one thing they can all agree on is that the bastions of the pale penis people and white supremacy, they're the real enemy. And that's what unites them as a coalition. And there are enormous internal contradictions here. I mean, I, I, you know, this woman's march, they kicked out the Jewish woman who, who helped found the thing because, you know, Jews are problematic now for the intersectionality crowd. At some point, it's going to dawn on people that the, Devout Muslims in a mass feminist movement have notions that are inconsistent with modern day liberationist feminism. But for now, they get papered over because they have a united front against an enemy. And it's, it's not the Jew per se, it's whiteness. But Jews play a role in a lot of that. And that's why we're seeing this flowering of anti-Semitism because it plays back these Marxist notions of the other and, and Jews are no longer being counted as part of the victim group. They're being exiled to the conspiracy mongering globalist evil group on on the left and you know obviously on parts of the right too now.
1: Karl Marx's Jew-hating conspiracy theory was published in Commentary magazine in April 2018. Jonah Goldberg, thanks so much for joining us. It's
0: great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so uh Um, I can't even do the so-and-so has left the building thing because this has all happened at a different point on the space-time continuum. We're not going to do our usual uh, banter for this one because we're recording this on the Friday before the three-day weekend, and who knows what's going to happen, and we don't want everyone screaming at us. How come you didn't mention the fact that uh, Donald Trump stabbed Mike Pence in the chest with a ballpoint pen? because um, we don't know if that happened yet. So thanks, everybody, to listening. Thanks again to the Tikva Fund and to the Tikva Podcast for letting us do this. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you next time.